Listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co host today is Cindy Johnson, Lighthouse volunteer and chapter leadership committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Today is December 19th, 2021. And this is episode 152 of Lighthearted. This episode is going to be different from the usual. Instead of featuring one or two interviews related to lighthouses, we're going to tell the story of the flying Santa to lighthouses and Coast Guard stations, a New England tradition that goes back to 1929. To help tell the story, we're going to use historic audio clips and also some clips from earlier podcast interviews. I want to give credit to my friend Brian Tague, who has played a very large role in keeping the Flying Santa tradition alive. A lot of what you'll be hearing today comes from the history that Brian has been compiling for years. Cindy, thank you for helping me tell the Flying Santa story today. Of course, you're welcome. The Flying Santa program was started by Captain William Winkabaugh. Here's Brian Tagg explaining who Captain Winkapaw was and how the tradition began. Captain Winkapaw was a native of Friendship, Maine, but he got his title captain from being a boat captain. Before he got into aviation, he did a lot of boating and fishing, and he uh, got into flying and was uh, pretty well known as an early pioneer in aviation. And he flew um, seaplanes and wheeled planes, and he uh, got into transporting freight and passengers. And um, at one point, he was shipping gold over the mountains in South America in the Andes. But his uh, base of operations, for the most part, was up in the Rockland area. With his job of flying around to the different islands, he'd be picking up passengers or delivering freight. He got to know a lot of the lighthouse keepers and the life-saving crews. And um, just one Christmas in 1929, he he thought it'd be neat to uh, recognize them on the holiday. So he put together about a half dozen packages of, I would say, magazines, newspaper, coffee, tea, candy, and things like that. And uh, he went up Christmas morning and made the run and threw the packages out and uh, went back home and had Christmas dinner with his family. And uh, in the days that followed, he got a lot of feedback from the uh, keepers and their families, how much they appreciated being recognized. He realized that this was something special for them and, and decided that he'd make a tradition and do it every year. In the years that followed, the flights expanded into Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Captain Winkapaw was joined on the lighthouse trips by his son, Bill Jr., an aspiring pilot. The Winkapaw family moved to Winthrop, Massachusetts, and by 1933, the Christmas flights took them to as many as 91 lighthouses and Coast Guard stations. In 1934, Bill Winkapaw Jr. became the youngest licensed pilot in Massachusetts at the age of 17. Bill Jr. introduced his father to Edward Rowe Snow, his history teacher at Winthrop High School. A native of Winthrop, a Massachusetts town that borders Boston Harbor, Edward Rowe Snow had always had an interest in the maritime history of the New England coast. He would eventually become one of the best-known maritime historians in the region. Captain Winkapaw was looking for help with his growing schedule of Santa flights, and Edward Rowe Snow was the right man for the job. In 1936, while Captain Winkapaw flew the northern route, Bill Jr. and Edward Rowe Snow flew to 25 stops in southern New England. 
Here's a recording from an interview I did in the 1980s with Maurice Babcock Jr., son of the keeper at Boston Light in the 1930s, remembering the Flying Santa. Oh, I can remember getting the presents, right. I can remember them landing on the ledges out in the back and uh, getting them when the tide went out. But as I remember, we used to get papers, magazines, Tootsie Rolls, chewing gum, Christmas candy. But there was always the excitement of going out and getting the package that dropped, whether it hit, whether it hit the water or hit the ledges. Or, and I don't think he really wanted to drop it in the mid of, middle of the island because he could have put it right through one of the houses. So he tried to drop it along the edges. But it was exciting. It was a recognition that we were out there. In 1940, both Captain Winkapaw and Bill Jr. were busy with other duties, and Edward Rosneau did the flights. He was accompanied by his wife, Anna Merle, who flew with him in most of the years that followed. Unlike the Winkapaws, Edward Rosneau was not a pilot, and he hired a pilot and plane each year. The flights were curtailed by World War II, but they picked up again following the war. The families at the light stations would sometimes spell out greetings on the ground for the Flying Santa. It was easy to spell out words on the ground after a snowfall, but when there was no snow, more creativity was needed. Here's Anna Merle Snow recalling a 1940 incident that involved 10-pound island light in Gloucester, Massachusetts. I think it was one of the first times that Edward and I went over um, 10-pound island light that the keeper's wife, when she knew he was coming, went out with newspapers and nails, and she nailed down a greeting to him, Merry Christmas. Well, Edward, when we, when we went over it, Edward and I were fascinated, and Edward took pictures of it. So the next morning, he had the pictures developed, and taken, he had taken them to the paper, the newspaper, and it came out in the paper that day. The boy from Ten Pound Island Light was at school that day, so when he came back from school, he had bought one of the papers and took it out to his mother, and the mother was very thrilled about it. The keeper said, hmm, I didn't think that that would come out. One of the most famous stories in Flying Santa history concerns Simond Ponsart, a lighthouse keeper's daughter in Massachusetts in the 1940s. Here's Brian Tagg telling the story. That was uh, December of 1945, and uh, they were making their run out to Cuddyhunk Lighthouse, and Simond Ponsart was, uh, I believe, about five years old at the time. And uh, her parents had told her that Flying Santa would be flying over and delivering a present for her. And she was all excited. She was uh, waiting for days for it to happen. And the day of the flight, uh, she was out there waiting for Edward Rose Snow to fly over. And uh, a couple of packages were thrown out of the aircraft. And unfortunately, Cuddyhunk is a very rocky island. The package that was meant for Simon did not survive uh, uh, too well. The uh, doll, I think it was a porcelain doll's head, uh, broke on impact. So uh, she was very, very upset. And I guess she cried herself to sleep that night. And the family wrote to Edward Rose Snow to thank him for the package and to explain what happened. And uh, he, uh, he was very uh, upset that he had disappointed Simon. And uh, he was trying to figure out a way to uh, correct that issue. And so the following December in 1946, he chartered a helicopter 
and this is one of the first uh, commercially available helicopters from Wiggins Airways. And uh, so at this point, the family had moved from Cuttyhunk to West Chop Lighthouse. So uh, they flew the helicopter down, they landed. And here's Anna Merle Snow in a recording I made in the 1980s telling the rest of the story. He handed the doll to the little girl and she was ecstatic. She loved the Flying Santa from that time on. And every year she would send him a letter and thank him again for making her Christmases so happy. The story of Simon Ponsart and the Flying Santa is told in the children's book, Love from the Sky, and also in the book, Everyday Heroes, the true story of a lighthouse family. And Simon recently wrote the following statement for a Flying Santa virtual event. Quote, who would ever think that something that happens to you at five years old would follow you all your life? Well, I wouldn't, but the Flying Santa did it for me and tons of other children, and I still am in awe of it. You see, Ed Snow made my Christmases last forever, and that great act of his kindness just makes it happen again and again for me all my life. The best and biggest Christmas gift I ever got was that forever gift of love from Edward Rowe Snow, my Flying Santa, unquote. While Edward Rowe Snow covered the southern route in 1946, the Winkapaws did the northern route. The Winkapaws made sure the flights were completed before Christmas Day, and for the first time in 18 years, Captain Winkapaw was able to celebrate Christmas at home with his wife. In the following July, tragedy struck the aviation world. On July 16, 1947, Captain Winkapaw suffered a heart attack shortly after taking off from Rockland Harbor. His Cub Cruiser seaplane nosedived into the water and both he and his passenger were killed. A memorial service was held in Rockland on July 19th and was attended by lighthouse keepers, their families, island residents, and representatives of the Coast Guard, Navy, and Army. At 2 o'clock as the service began, foghorns and bells rang out across Penobscot Bay in memory of Captain William H. Winkapaw, the Flying Santa of the Lighthouses. Edward Rowe Snow told the Boston Post, quote, Bill had a heart as big as anyone I have ever known. His thoughtfulness in beginning the lighthouse flights will never be forgotten by the lighthouse keepers and coast guardsmen up and down the New England coast, unquote. During his northbound Santa flight in December 1947, Edward Rowe Snow dropped a memorial wreath over Rockland Harbor in honor of Captain Winkapaw. The program that year included 176 lighthouses and Coast Guard stations from Canada to Florida. The tradition was very much alive. Here's a clip of Anna Merle Snow remembering the reaction of a keeper's wife at Plymouth Lighthouse in Massachusetts. This uh, keeper had just been married and he and his wife were living at the light at Christmas time. Well, it's very lonely out there because it's difficult to go along the beach and get into to Duxbury. So uh, when the plane went over, she was all excited and she ran out and we saw her feet going just as fast as they could to pick up the bundle. And later she wrote and said that she was delighted. She felt at more, much more at home now that they had been uh, welcomed so nicely at the Gurnet. Thank you.
The Snows moved to Marshfield on Boston's South Shore in 1950. In the following year, their daughter Dolly was born. Dolly flew along with her parents for the first time when she was less than one year old, and she flew each year after that until she was married. Here's a clip of Dolly Snow Bicknell from an earlier episode of this podcast. So you first went on a flying Santa flight when you were one year old, or less than one year old, right? And right. Uh, I don't think you remember too much about that one, but what are some of your earliest memories of the flying Santa flights? Well, words like rough, bumpy. I loved that open window. As soon when they don't, he'd open the window to drop the packages out. It was just so nice. That's a mare. <laughs> yes. Um, it was usually a five-seat plane. I remember Piper Apache, Aztec, Comanche. I don't know if those are real names, but I remember those. The pilot would always be in the front left, and my dad would be in the window right behind him with that special window that opened at the top. And then the front right would usually be a photographer, and behind him, next to my dad, would be my mother. And then I'd be in the back, in the middle, with packages all around me, packed left, right, up, down. And did I say rough and bumpy? I think I did. Each year it would be, should we try Dramamine? Should we try no Dramamine? Should we try breakfast? No breakfast? Made no difference. It was rough and it was difficult. But I kind of knew it was kind of special because everybody was pretty happy when they saw him. Here's another clip of Dolly talking about what was in the Santa packages. So what was typically in the the packages? Cigars and cigarettes, because at that time, everybody smoked, although my parents never did. But the Coast Guardsmen were into cigars and cigarettes, candy, lollipops, chewing gum, pens and pencils, sunglasses, balloons, rubber balls, paperback books, Gillette razor blades, Mm -hmm. puzzles, sometimes a doll or other toy, and always a copy of his latest book. And then he also had a self-addressed stamp postcard that read, we have received your package and would have a space for the the lighthouse or Coast Guard station. And those postcards let him know that he could claim 94% accuracy over all those years that he flew. Uh, I remember he told me one time that they tried, I think it was just once, tried ribbon candy. (laughs) Oh, somebody donated ribbon candy. <laughs> I think he ended up bringing a lot of that after it, he tried it, it broke. He brought it to when they would land because sometimes there would be people who would be there and he could give that out there. But ribbon candy, you're right. I had forgotten all about that. Good for That's you. That's pretty funny. The That's thought of dropping ribbon candy from a, a plane. A plane was. <laughs> right. The Edward Rose Snow year saw the expansion of the flights to the Great Lakes, Bermuda, and Atlantic Canada. In 1954, the Snows flew to remote Sable Island, 100 miles east of Nova Scotia. After arriving by seaplane, Santa jumped aboard a wagon drawn by several of the island's semi-wild ponies and delivered gifts to three children and 23 adults living on the island. Here's a recording from the CBC of Edward Rosneau talking to a little girl at the airport in Sydney, Nova Scotia. How are you, young lady? You want to tell me your name? Marie. Marie. How old are you, Marie? (laughs) Four? Well, that's fine. And what what are you going to be when you grow up? A woman. A woman. (laughs) That's pretty good. What are you going to have for Christmas? A doll. A doll. 
Well, that's fine. Good night. Next, let's listen to a clip from the 1960s from a Boston radio show called Contact with host Bob Kennedy interviewing Edward Rowe Snow at the airport just before takeoff. It's a rather cold, kind of snowy morning here at Norwood Airport, and the gentleman standing next to me uh, looks like Santa Claus. In fact, kind of a special Santa Claus, a flying Santa Claus. And as I look a little closer, it uh, kind of looks like a fellow we know very well here on Contact, Ed Rowe Snow. How are you, Ed? And kind of a little early Merry Christmas to you. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm feeling pretty good, and Merry Christmas to you, Bob. Ed Rowe Snow, I thought you mainly stayed aboard or near the sea. How come the airplane, and how come the flying Santa Claus? Well, we fly out over the sea in this plane, and we will leave in just a few moments. We will cover about 1,600 miles today and go down into Maryland as our greatest objective of the day. Also, we will stop at Martha's Vineyard. We will stop at Nantucket Island. We will stop at Block Island, and meanwhile, as we go to and from those various airports, we will drop from our plane about 112 bundles. And so how long have you been the Flying Santa? My first year was 1936, and I've been doing it every year, except one when I was in the North African invasion. So this will be the 27th trip. And here's a quick clip of Edward Rosneau explaining why he stopped wearing a beard as the Flying Santa. Every time I stick my head out of the window, goes the beard. Once, a few weeks after he lost his beard out the window while dropping a package at a lighthouse, Edward Rosneau received a package in the mail. In the package was the beard, along with a note that said, quote, Here are your whiskers. Now where's my package? Unquote. In the 1970s, Ken Black was the officer in charge of the Coast Guard Station in Rockland, Maine. He went on to be the founder of the Maine Lighthouse Museum. Here's a clip from an interview I did with Ken in the late 1980s about a time he turned the tables and gave a gift to the Flying Santa. Every year when Edward would come up with, with the Flying Santa, why I'd meet him uh, at Rockland Airport, and we'd have a little fun time with it. I'd always make sure that we had a bunch of bunch of kids, the Coast Guard kids and the Coast Guard wives. And I started a little Coast Guard exchange here, so we, had some, we were able to get some funds for this sort of thing. So uh, I bought a, a very special Coast Guard lamp, uh, and I said, when, when Edward comes this time, well, we'll surprise him, we'll give him a present, So which we did. And, and they made a big to-do about it. And a nice Coast Guard lamp, and he was very pleased. Next, here's a clip from two interviews I did with Coast Guard lighthouse keepers in Maine in the 1980s. First, you'll hear Larry Baum, who was stationed at Great Duck Island and Fort Point. And then you'll hear Malcolm Rouse, who was stationed at West Quaddy Head and Owl's Head. The Flying Santa was a great event and a tradition, and, you know, it was perfect. It was the, the best thing for morale you could imagine on the stag stations. It was even better on the family stations because... Most of the family stations were on offshore islands to have the traditional Flying Santa Claus come by and stop and drop them something for them that was from Santa Claus. And to be able to see him in the airplane or see him when they stopped with the helicopters was probably the best thing for morale. It carried you through the whole year. Well, Christmas comes and the guys that are, were married and, and had kids, they want to be home. Or even the single guys. It's, you know, everyone want to be, the last place they want to be is that lighthouse. 
and look up and see this plane flying around and someone thinking of them, dropping presents like that, like Edward Rose Snow did, I'm sure brought countless moments of joy to a lot of Coast Guard personnel that, you know, they wouldn't have had a Christmas if it wasn't for him. Edward Rose Snow carried the Flying Santa tradition right through 1980, but in the following spring he suffered a stroke. The whole Life-Saving Museum, founded just two years earlier on Boston's South Shore, stepped into the Flying Santa program in the 1981 holiday season. Judith Van Ham, director of the museum, was given the blessing of Anna Merle Snow to carry out that year's flights. A small ceremony was held at Boston's Logan Airport, where Anna Merle and her daughter Dolly presented Mr. Snow's Santa suit to Ed McCabe, the first flying Santa for the Hull Life-Saving Museum. Here's a recording of Judith Van Ham from that 1981 event. When we started this, it was very symbolic, what I said about honoring Mr. Snow and thanking the Coast Guard. But it has become much more than symbolic. As soon as Mrs. Snow gave me a hug, <laughs> it, it is more than symbolic when a youngster writes a letter, says, this is my name, I want to know your names, here's my address, write an answer to me. Or when Ed tells me that yesterday, Kids came running out from the houses at the lighthouse, and he knows that they now believe Santa comes in a helicopter and wears a red survival suit. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being here. More than 20 lighthouses from West Quaddy, Maine to Warwick, Rhode Island, were visited by helicopter that year. Santa Ed McCabe had a full, dark beard, and the children at the lighthouses sometimes asked why Santa didn't have the traditional white beard. The response was simple. Santa's beard didn't turn white until Christmas Eve. Volunteers of the Hull Lifesaving Museum worked to keep the tradition alive, but as the nation's lighthouses were being automated, the flights were reduced to 15 stops by 1987. In the years that followed, the program transitioned into a means to show gratitude to Coast Guard personnel and their supportive families at stations from New York to the northern Maine coast. Massachusetts native Brian Tagg became the official Flying Santa photographer in 1991, and his involvement deepened over the years. Brian was instrumental in the formation of the Friends of Flying Santa as a separate nonprofit organization in 1997, staffed entirely by volunteers. Friends of Flying Santa has done its fundraising over the years in a variety of ways, with lectures, lighthouse cruises, bus tours, and other events, as well as donations and sales of Flying Santa merchandise through the website at flyingsanta.org. Hundreds of volunteer hours go into each year's flights. Several retired and active duty Coast Guard officers have filled the role of the Flying Santa, including Dave Waldrip, Tom Guthline, John Roberts, Dave Considine, and Bill Donahue. The helicopter flights have been donated by several companies as well as private owners, and the helicopter pilots all donate their time. All the flights are by helicopter now, with more than 1,000 children of Coast Guard personnel receiving gifts each year. Brian has compared his experience on the flights to taking part in 10 Christmas parties in a single day. I flew along on the Massachusetts flight several years ago. I can tell you that it was a wonderful but exhausting experience. The flights start before dawn and finish after sunset. The work put in by the pilots, by Santa, and by Brian Tagg is incredible. And most years there are five individual flights in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Next, we're going to hear a short clip from the mid-1980s of Anna Merle Snow talking about the Flying Santa flights. 
It was recorded at one of the annual Edward Rowe Snow Days on George's Island in Boston Harbor. We used to say we could have had a very fancy home if we had used the money in other ways, but it, think of how much more fun it was to give it to the people of the lighthouses, to, to see them coming out. When you're in the plane, you see them coming out. He would go around the lighthouse first and let them know he was coming. And then he would drop a package. He'd look out and see if they got it. He'd go around again and drop another package. And it was so much fun, such satisfaction. And let's listen to Brian Tague summing up the meaning of the flights during the interview he did for this podcast. The primary purpose of the flights is to show appreciation for the Coast Guard families. I think it's an underappreciated branch of the military. They do an awful lot with very little, and they don't get much recognition for what they do. And, and I've gotten to be friends with a lot of these folks over the years, and you know these men and women, whether they're on cutters that are gone for three months or boat stations for you know two days on and uh, two days off, it's, it's, a, it's a tough family experience because you're you could be moving from massachusetts to oregon to florida to texas and uh you know they don't always have family around for the holidays so to be here in new england and be able to look forward to the flying santa event and know that santa is coming to your mother or father's coast guard station because you know you're you're special and we're showing appreciation for it and you know flying santa is uh is looking out for these coast guard families and um we're happy to do it and it's a uh, it's, we've been told it's one of the uh, biggest morale events of the year for the Coast Guard families, and we're up to 1,200 Coast Guard kids from every Coast Guard unit from the Canadian border down to Long Island, New York. The many missions of the Coast Guard include ICE operations, fisheries law enforcement, marine environmental protection, marine safety, aids to navigation, search and rescue, defense readiness, maritime law enforcement, migrant interdiction, ports security, and drug interdiction. As Brian said, it's a very important and underappreciated branch of our military. By making a donation of any size to Friends of Flying Santa, you can help keep a heartwarming tradition alive, and you'll also be saying thank you to Coast Guard families for all they do for us every single day. Visit flyingsanta.org to learn more about Friends of Flying Santa, to make a donation, or to buy Flying Santa merchandise, including books and clothing. Many thanks to all the people who volunteer their time to keep the Flying Santa flying. Thanks, as always, to all the staff members and volunteers of the U.S. Lighthouse Society all around the world. Check out uslhs.org to learn about all the things the Society offers. The author Charmaine J. Ford once wrote, quote, An ounce of goodness every day can soothe the heart in many ways. An ounce of goodness just because don't wait till Christmas to be Santa Claus, unquote. To all our listeners, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light.